0: And as uh, Jonathan mentioned earlier, we uh, are working our way sequentially through, uh, verse by verse, as we uh, try to understand, as we try to learn what the Lord would have for us here in this wonderful epistle of uh, the Ephesians, or to the Ephesians, that is. So let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We praise you that we can be here, and Father, we pray... Praise you for the ministry of the Word, Father. We thank you for this foundation that we've been given, that we might build upon, Lord. That this foundation of the apostles and prophets that have been has been given to us in your Word, Father, that we may build upon the doctrines that they have taught, so that we might have this this solid ground in which we uh, build. We thank you and praise you this morning for all these things in Christ's name, Amen. Let me read, let me read the passage to us, uh, starting in verse eleven and reading through twenty-two. I would like to read uh, the entire passage to give us, to give us context this morning. The Apostle Paul writes in verse eleven: Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he made who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law, of, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. So that in the law of I'm sorry, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who were far away, and he preached to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now we arrive at our verses for this week. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone." (coughs) in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Well, in 1884, a lady named Sarah Winchester moved to California and bought an unfinished farmhouse after the death of her husband. Carpenters were hired and they worked on the house around the clock until it became a seven-story mansion. This home was no ordinary place of residence. The building was at its height when in 1906 the earthquake, the famous earthquake of 1906, hit the home and severely damaged the upper stories. The earthquake so so shook up Sarah that she changed her strategy from building up to building out. And after the quake, at the height of this remodeling project, her house was one of the largest around. It uh, measured 24,000 square feet. As it stands today, it contains 2,000 doors. Many of these are blocked off by brick, some open to a second floor exterior with no landing. There are an, an amazing 10,000 windows. Many of these are stained glass, and some were even designed by a man named Louis Tiffany. In case you ever are cold from the weather in San San Francisco Bay Area, there are 47 fireplaces. There are even two indoor conservatories. Incredibly, there are 40 staircases, and many of these actually go nowhere. They just go up to a landing and they're done. Sarah herself suffered from debilitating arthritis during her later years, so she even designed Special stairs with very low risers in order for her to be able to lift her feet high enough to uh, go up the stairs. She also had three elevators and a special shower installed, which helped relieve her pain. If you think about 1884, having a shower was, was an incredible uh, piece of technology. Well, Sarah Winchester, as you may have picked up, is, was the heiress uh, to the Winchester fortune. Her husband actually had invented the Winchester Repeating Rifle. And after he and her baby died just a few months apart, she moved to California, she bought this house, and she started this remodeling job for the ages. From that point forward, this house was, this home was in a constant state of becoming. She would have something built, and then she would tear it down if she didn't like it. Unbelievably, as you may know, the construction actually ended on the day of her death. 36 years later. No one knows exactly why she started or why she continued. Many believe that she was trying to escape the pain of her family's death. The home itself was just as odd as its owner's behavior. She built it with no real master plan, or at least any master plan that could be discerned. The individual parts of the home didn't fit together properly. There was no flow. There was no real purpose. It's hard to know why she built the home and why she never stopped. Perhaps she just loved the work. Perhaps she was trying to escape the harsh truth of her life. Some even say she was haunted by all the deaths caused by the (coughs) rifle that her husband (coughs) built. Now that probably doesn't surprise you, considering our culture's interest in paranormal occurrences. Ultimately, we don't know why she did what she did. All that we know is that she had no discernible purpose in building this home. Like all of us, Sarah was made in the image of God or in the image of her creator. But this image has been distorted by sin. As such, she took the financial means that she had been given through her husband's fortune and she she built this home. She built the house of her dreams, as it were, as distorted as it was. In that way, she reflected the glory of our Creator. You see, He is also a builder. Yet, His building projects, unlike Sarah's, His building projects are perfect. Each aspect of His creation has discernible purpose. Every individual creation, every individual thing that He creates fits perfectly with the other parts of His handiwork. There are no mistakes. Everything flows perfectly. Did you know that there is something called the Golden Ratio? This ratio is found in things that we find beautiful. From architecture to a person's face, even seashells and flowers evidence this ratio. There is a series of numbers where each number is the sum of the two numbers which preceded. It is called the Fibonacci series. It is represented by this ratio that I'm speaking of, this golden ratio. It has been called the built-in numbering system of the cosmos. This numbering system shows up everywhere. Have you ever looked at the seed head of a flower or at a pine cone? The pattern almost always follows the Fibonacci series. Think about it. This ratio is found throughout nature, and it reflects the beauty of our Creator. Do you know what else or who else reflects the beauty of our Creator? The beauty of God? His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And amazingly, in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has said over and over and over that we as Christians are in Christ. We are His workmanship. We are His creation. We have been created in Christ Jesus, and what God is creating is just as beautiful or more so than what we see in nature. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God, yet God has saved us by His grace. He has completely changed our status. He has given us a whole new significance. A whole new significance. We were at war with God, and now Christ, God Himself, has become our peace. He's given us a completely different perspective on life. Beloved, if you are a believer, you have been placed in Christ. You are part of the body of Christ, and as such, we together make up the body of Christ. Now in the last few verses of chapter 2, Paul will give us the Ephesians and us as well, three beautiful consequences of this new status in Christ. First, in Him you are fellow citizens of His kingdom. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Beloved, this is a wonderful truth. You see, Paul has worked his way through chapters 1 and 2, and he's made his way to the end of this chapter, and now he makes this major point. He is Christ that is has made you and, and through the cross has made you fellow citizens with the saints. God has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's chapter one, verse four. He has predestined you to adoption as sons through Christ. He did all of this according to the good pleasure of His will, will and to the praise of the of His glorious grace. Again, the, He did it for His glory. He has redeemed you, according to chapter 1, He has redeemed you through the blood of Christ. He has forgiven you of your trespasses according to the riches, the abounding riches of His grace. And He's also, according to verse 13 of chapter 1, sealed you with the Holy Spirit, as a pledge, as a pledge to our full redemption, our full redemption in the future. Beloved, according to Paul, you did nothing to deserve this. You see, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were living according to the lust of your flesh. You deserved His wrath. And during Paul's time, if you were a Gentile... You were doubly lost. You had no hope. You were without God in this world. But in Christ, you have been brought near by the blood of His cross. You have been reconciled to God and to man. And you've received peace from Him. You've been even given direct access to God through the Spirit. To the Father, that is, through the Spirit. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you have hit the ultimate jackpot. Now, It's interesting because I believe that uh, that terminology actually cheapens the glory of Christ. Yet Yet, to our finite minds, this analogy works. You have hit the ultimate jackpot. The fact of the matter is that you've been made fellow citizens of His glorious kingdom. And you do not deserve it. Look at the text. Paul says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. The Greek word strangers is actually xenos. I don't usually use the Greek words directly, but I I do in this case because we derive the English word xenophobe, which means fear of strangers from this Greek word. The the word actually refers to an outcast, to someone who's wretched and vile and rotten, uh, someone for us to keep at a distance. On the other hand, the Greek word translated aliens meant to be a foreigner living in a strange place. They're a friend. You can bring them into your home, but they're not part of the family. So he says, Paul in effect is saying, either you were a wretched outcast that you wouldn't have in the house, in the home, or you were a house guest who had no rights. But either way, either way, you were not part of the family. You were not a citizen. You didn't have rights as a citizen. You must recognize that Paul is speaking to Gentiles in the church at Ephesus. He's affirming that they were strangers and aliens. In other words, they didn't have full privileges of a citizen of the kingdom of God. In Paul's time, in that time, ancient list of city residents ranked the privileges of its people. Full citizens were always first in rank with full privileges of being a citizen. Resident aliens were next. They were down the list, but they were next, and they were given partial privileges. And transient foreigners were last. Strangers and aliens then were outsiders, according to what Paul is saying, were outsiders, but they did not have the legal rights of a citizen. And often, at a personal level, they were without social acceptance from the communities in which they lived. You know, we've heard many stories concerning African American, African American slave trade, but there were other groups who were cat, outcast in our societies. In the eighteen 19, eighteen and nineteen hundreds, there were groups of immigrants who, such as the Chinese, who came into the United States, and they were not seen as first class citizens. They weren't given; uh, the, they were not culturally accepted in our in our society. They were strangers and aliens in our land. This has happened, unfortunately, over and over and over throughout the history of the world. It's the way we we do things as humans, right? Because we're depraved. The the Apostle Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to recognize that they were no longer outcasts. They were no longer on the outside of the kingdom looking in. Now, I don't think we can read too much into the specific words that he uses, Ultimately, I think he's painting in broad brushstrokes. In other words, he, he contrasts their former status as being outsiders separated from the people of God with their new status as being fellow citizens with the saints. Notice what he says. He says, with the saints. I want you to notice that phrase in your text. Paul is saying that the church at Ephesus now forms one citizenry, that is, with all other believers from every dispensation. They have joined those who have believed God's promises from the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve. This includes the faithful from, from Seth to Noah, from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Joshua, from David to Josiah, from Isaiah to John the Baptist to the apostles, all the way down to today. As believers, we have been given full citizenship with all the saints. You have been given full status in the kingdom of God. You are a full ranking member with every privilege ever given to all the saints. I hope you will recognize the impact of this incredible truth. It's easy for us to get caught up in in the difficulties of our lives in a sin-cursed world. We we can live as as if this is the best that it can get. We fight over the rottenness of this world, and we have been given more than we could ever imagine in the world Think, we, well, what if we truly lived in light of this great truth? What if we truly lived as if we had been given full status in the kingdom of God? Paul explains it this way in Philippians 3.20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in 3.21. This is Philippians 3.21. Who will transform the body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In other words, we don't see and fully understand what we will become. We will be transformed. We will be changed from the humility of our current state into a glorified body which conforms to the glory of Christ. We have been made citizens of heaven. So the next time you find yourself struggling with the realities of this world, I hope you'll think of the greater reality of the world to come, the greater reality that you have been made citizens of the kingdom. In Christ, you have have been made, let me say it this way, let me turn it upside down, in Christ, you have been made strangers and aliens in this world. You are strangers and aliens in this world. But you've been brought near and made citizens of God's kingdom. Let's look at the second great reality of your new status in Christ. In him, not only have you been made fellow citizens of his kingdom, but you have been made full members of his family. Notice the next phrase at the end of verse 19. You are of God's household. Here Paul becomes even more personal. We have been made part of God's household. Friends... God loves you so much that He wouldn't stand for just having you as a fellow citizen. He makes you part of His family. He made us fellow sons and fellow heirs. Jesus says in Hebrews 2.11, I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. They're, we are joint heirs, sons of the Father. We are families. Paul, Paul had actually introduced this idea of family in chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In verse 5, that's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. You see, Paul intended to convey that we had been adopted. We have been adopted in Christ and given Every right of a firstborn son. As such, you're not only fellow citizens of the kingdom, but you've been made full members of the family. In 218, he says, We've been given access in one spirit to the Father. In 219, he likens the church then to a household. Now, this idea of household takes the idea of a family or a closely knit group of people brought together by circumstances. In Paul's time. A household would have been understood as an organized unit with structure, with lines of authority, and with clear function. Everyone in the household would have a role to play for the survival of the family. Now, we may not completely see that. We may not completely recognize it in our day because we tend to live in more of an independent fashion. But in families in that culture would have depended on one another for everything. So Paul described the church in this fashion. We are supposed to be a tight-knit, group, a tight-knit group of people who love one another, who love one another, and depend upon one another spiritually and physically. They have all things in common. There are to be clear lines of authority with Christ being head of the church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul exhorted, the exhorted Timothy, Timothy said this, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You see, the church is pictured as a household, a family, and the church then is a pillar and support of the truth, pillar, pillar and foundation of the truth. And Paul goes to great pains to instruct Timothy and and us concerning how we ought to conduct ourselves in in this church, in God's household. Brothers and sisters, we are family. We are family. We are to care for one another. We are to love one another. We are to hold one another accountable. We are to encourage one another. We are to love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, thinking how we might hold one another as more important than ourselves. It's tough, right? It's tough. We are sinful. Things get in the way. We forget one another. We we make ourselves more important. But in reality, that's not how it should be, brethren. We should treat each other as family. We shouldn't forget that Paul was encouraging the church at Ephesus to press forward in ministry. He didn't want them to grow weary and fail. He encouraged them that while they were once strangers and aliens, now they are citizens of God's kingdom, and they're part of God's family. They have been adopted as sons, having been made uh, made family. Now I want to encourage you here today. You see, God is placed you here, if you're part of this church, He's placed you here, and He's made you part of this family. Wherever you might find yourself in God's kingdom, wherever you might find yourself going to church, He has placed you there, and He's made you part of the family. He has adopted you, and and you have become heirs of God. In Romans 8, 17, Paul says that we are heirs of God, and we are co-heirs with Christ. You see, all the riches of God are ours and will be ours for all of eternity. This truth doesn't alleviate the fact that we suffer in the present, right? Bearing the family likeness of Christ in the present often involves suffering and perhaps even humiliation for the sake of His name. Yet if we suffer, we can be assured that our identification with Christ is Will cultivate, cult, culminate, cultivate, will end up in sharing his glory. <laughs> culminate, that's what I'm trying to get out. You see, that's James's point in James chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, which speaks of trials and suffering which <laughs> cause us to grow in Christ's likeness. These, these verses end up with this statement in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, this verse in James 1 helps us understand what Paul is trying to accomplish in the Ephesian church. Paul had been imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel. You have to understand, this was uh, seemingly a very precarious time for the church. You see, Paul was locked up. False teachers, they lurked. The gospel was being challenged. The church looked to be in great peril. Yet here we have Paul encouraging them with this glorious truth of who they are in Christ and that they have access, direct access to the Father and the Spirit. They've been made citizens of, of the kingdom and they've been placed into the household of God. You see, Paul was calling them to persevere in the knowledge of what Christ had accomplished for them at the cross. You see, despite how it looked, des- despite the difficulty, all was not lost. Reality seemed very bleak for that for the church at the time. As I'm sure reality can seem to us at times. Yet all was not lost. The apostles' ministry was closing. You have to understand that. The apostles' ministry was closing at this point, And most of them would be martyred, including Paul. Things looked incredibly bleak, but the foundation for the church had been laid. In Christ, the church, had been given a whole new significance, a, a new reality, a new status in Christ. How could they, but how could they be assured of this new reality? How could they be assured that it would continue, that the church would continue despite these challenges? Well, look at your text. Look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Beloved, there is so much here. I could preach an entire sermon, probably a a series of sermons, on this verse. But I want you to understand that every building has its foundation, and the church is no different. According to Paul, the church then is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, first I would argue, quickly, that that Paul is talking about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. I think that if he had meant to convey the Old Testament prophets, he would have brought them to the forefront. But in in the case of the New Testament church, the apostles then take precedence. Now, obviously, they're building upon the foundation that was given in the Old Testament. We don't want to push the Old Testament aside. It's it's just as important. But the point is is that what Paul is talking about is that the the church is built upon the foundation, which is the apostles and prophets. Let Let me explain that even further. I think it's accurate to say that it's the apostles and prophets, but it's more accurate, I believe, to say that they laid the foundation in that they have handed down the Word of God in the New Testament to us, and that that is the work that they have done is the foundation with Christ being the cornerstone. Now we have to understand that that in Matthew 16, Christ said, Upon this rock, I believe it to be Christ, He will build His church. But He then, He becomes then the cornerstone. He becomes the stone by which the building is squared, that the building is built upon. And the, the, the Apostles' work was to lay the foundation uh, with that cornerstone so that the church, so that we could come along and build the church. Beloved, the prophets and the apostles have laid the foundation we are to build upon, the foundation of the doctrine, the foundation that is revealed in, to us in the Word of God, specifically, in this case, the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon says this, if we would, as wise master builders really build up the church, we must be careful as to our foundation at the first. And upon that foundation, we must keep building to the end. Well, you know what that foundation is? The Word of God. It's the foundation that has been given to us and revealed to us by God through His apostles and prophets. God has revealed His Word to the the apostles and to the prophets, and we have been handed down the Word of God, uh, from from them. Therefore, this means that not so much that the apostles and prophets are the foundation as that they laid the foundation. It is their work. The foundation is their work. They laid the foundation of doctrine as revealed in God's Word, the New Testament. Their work, then, is connected to the person of Christ who is the chief cornerstone. And as Christ... Under shepherds, we are to build upon the foundation of doctrine which has been laid by the apostles and prophets. As such, then we can have confidence in our new status as citizens of the kingdom, as members of the family, because of their witness, because of their work, because of the foundation. We can be confident in all that God has done. We are tied directly to them and directly to God by the work that they've done and what they have revealed in the Word of God. We can be, again, confident that we are adopted as firstborn sons, that we've been made heirs of God. And lastly, in the third reality, we can, we can be confident that we are fully part of His holy temple. Look at verse 21. Third, this is our third, third point. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, let's not skip over the first two words of verse 21. Paul says, in whom. This continues the refrain that Paul has carried throughout the verse two chapters of this letter. The glorious truth that we are in Christ. We are His body. According to Paul, we're being fitted together. See, he turns from a reference to being citizens uh, to being a family. Now he changes the metaphor again to being a building which is perfectly fitted together. The, the word he used here denotes that God has made every part of this building to fit together perfectly. As John MacArthur states, he says this, When God builds his church, it fits. Compact, firm, not loose, or, and ill-arranged masonry, unstable and ugly, solid, cohesive, snug, firm. Every stone is fitted perfectly into its place without defect. No stone out of place and no stone broken. End quote. Beloved, this has profound implications. This has profound implications to us. You see, God makes no mistakes. He has perfectly fashioned His church. Every part fits together Perfectly. Every part flows. You have been placed in the body by the Father. You have been perfectly fitted with other believers. Again, again, God has not mistakenly placed you here. There's no mistake. He is attentive to each individual, He is attentive to the whole. You see, positionally, we are perfect before the Lord. We are fellow citizens of His kingdom. We are full members of His family, yet you, we have not been haphazardly thrown together like Sarah Winchester's home. You see, the church perfectly flows. We have been perfectly fitted, forming a perfect building, which is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.5. He says, you also, as as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, each of you, each of us, we're in Christ, and we're like living stones. No stone is broken or marred or inadequate. Every stone is perfect and fitted in perfection together by the the master builder. As such, you are being fitted specifically to fit into his holy temple. This act of honing you, this act of shaping you can be painful, right? But it is good. You see, he whittles us, he he fits us, he hones us. And he does this until the the whole is perfect, and and it continues to grow, and it will continue to do so until every stone is accounted Every stone. We need to then recognize the, the nature of this temple. You see, we tend to think of the temple as a place of worship to God, and that is very, very true. We go to the temple, they, the, the people went to the temple in order to worship, in order to worship Yahweh. But there's also a horizontal aspect to this temple, right? Remember, we have been reconciled to God vertically, but we've also been reconciled to one another. We have been fitted together with one another, regardless of your background, regardless of your nationality, whatever your social status, no matter your family name, irrespective of your educational status, whether you're a PhD or a high school dropout, you have been knitted together with fellow citizens, fellow members of the family, fellow Christians. As I said last week, we shouldn't have any heart in racism, but I would also say that it shouldn't matter who we are in this world, right? Here in the body of Christ, we are one. We have been fitted together by a a wise master builder. We've been fitted together and we've been placed here uh, in, in wise fashion. He makes no mistakes. Look at verse 22 in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Notice again, Paul says, in whom? In whom? That is in Christ. In Him you are being built into a a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You should note that that God dwelled in the the tabernacle. (coughs) He dwelt among His people. Now He dwells in His people reminds me of Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Isaiah 66, 1 says this, Thus says Yahweh, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. And he says this. says this, and it's very incredibly profound. But to this, One, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You see, God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands, but he dwells with those who are humble and contrite of spirit. He dwells in us, he lives within those people who tremble at his word. He chooses to dwell within his people. Considering this, listen to. Jesus, what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, he says this in 4.21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In verse 23, he says this, But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. See the connection? That he dwells in those who are humble and contrite in spirit. And it's those people that the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Beloved, we are in the hour that Jesus spoke of, right? In that hour where we, where we worship him in spirit and truth. God is still seeking worshipers. The time may be short. The question is, have you... Turn to Him. Have you turned to Him? Are you a worshiper of the one true God? Have you been made a citizen of God's kingdom? Have you been made a member of His family? Is He your Father? Are we your brothers and sisters? Are you part of His holy temple? Or are you still... Going back to chapter 2, verse 1, are you still dead in your trespasses and sins? Are you still walking according to the ways of this world? Are you still enslaved to the lust of your flesh and indulging in the desires of your flesh and of your mind? If these things are true of you, then you are by nature a child of wrath. I beg you. This is going back to 2 Corinthians 5. I beg you, on behalf of God, to be reconciled to him. Because, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He has gone to the cross so that he might reconcile to himself a people for his own possession, so that he might knit us together and, and make us citizens of his kingdom, that he might knit us together and make us part of his family as he builds us up into a holy temple, so that he might dwell within us. I beg you. I beg you. Come to him. If you know Him today, I beg you to recognize your new status in Christ. You are citizens of the kingdom. You have been made members of the family. You are fully part of His holy temple. You've been given a whole, whole new significance, right? whole new significance. A new status. A new status in Christ. beg you, may your life match this new status that you've been given. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you that you have given us this new status in Christ, that you have Taken those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who formerly have walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Those who have lived in the lust of their flesh and are the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Those who don't deserve your goodness, your mercy, your compassion. Yet, you have saved us. You who are rich in mercy, you have reconciled us to yourself in the cross through the work of our Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, I thank you. We praise you for all that you've done in reconciling us to yourself and reconciling us with one another. We praise you, Lord, that you have made us citizens of the kingdom, full rights of the kingdom, fellow citizens with the saints. Father, we praise you that you've made us part of the family, adopted as heirs, given full rights as firstborn sons. We praise your holy name, that you're dwelling amongst us even now. Father, I pray that we would live our lives in light of this great truth that we would live our lives in a way that glorifies you that we would walk in the works that you have created us for father you have you are building for yourself you're building for yourself a wonderful what brings you glory that is we thank you and praise you that you have brought glory to yourself and that we would be able to worship you forever. In Christ's name.